Hello, my name is Kristen Smith, and welcome to the Sight Black Women podcast. We have the pleasure of having Dr. Jen M. Jackson here with us today, one of our collective members. Welcome, Jen. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. I'm excited to have you on. I've been wanting to have you on for a while, and so um, Pride Month was the perfect excuse absolutely, yeah. <laughs> to bring absolutely. you on here. Mm-hmm. Before we get started, I want to introduce you to everyone. Dr. Jen M. Jackson, who uses the pronouns they, them, is a queer, gender flux, androgynous Black woman, an abolitionist, a lover of all Black people, and an assistant professor at Syracuse University in the Department of Political Science. Jackson's primary research is in Black politics with a focus on group threat, gender and sexuality, political behavior, and social movements. Jackson also holds affiliate positions in African-American studies, women's and gender studies, and LGBT studies. They are a senior research associate at the Campbell Public Affairs Institute at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University as well. Jackson is the author of the forthcoming book, Black Women Taught Us, which is coming out with Random House Press in 2023. We can't wait. This book is an intellectual and political history of Black women's activism, movement organizing, and philosophical work that explores how women from Harriet Jacobs to Audre Lorde to the members of the Combahee River Collective, among others, have for centuries taught us how to fight for justice and radically reimagine a more just world for us all. They are also the author of the forthcoming book, Policing Blackness, with University of Chicago Press. And that's also set to come out in 2023. You mm-hmm. are busy, Dr. Jackson. Uh, very, very to busy. Sleep. I got to sit down. Gotta you sit have down. to sit down. I mean, I'm a fan. You know, I'm all about Black women <laughs> napping. You know, shout out to the nap ministry. I'm all about Black women napping. So, yeah. you know, in addition to writing and being fantastic and fabulous and wonderful, I'm going to need for you to take a nap. I, and it's weird. I actually take a lot of naps and I'm like, but I still feel like, why am I still sleepy? I don't know. 37 is hard. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> you know, I think part of it is everybody's just doing too much. Yeah. Everyone is, yeah. everyone is doing too much. I know, yeah. you know, for us, for me, I'll just say this before we get started. Like, the past two years have been mm-hmm. grueling, mm-hmm. grinding, mm-hmm. intense. I feel like I have been, you know, sleepwalking through a nightmare yeah. for the past two years because yeah. it's just been a lot. Yeah, and everybody's thing. feeling it. So it's not just you. It's not. It has nothing to do with age or anything else. It is all about the fact that we are not. We are being overworked. Yeah overtaxed and all the things and the world is on fire the world is on literal fire every day there's some other emergency and we do not have time to mourn or grieve you know it's just it's constant and i literally like last thursday i was like i'm gonna leave the house and just go look for horses today my partner was like oh okay (laughs) have fun i love that i mean i think that's what we have to do yeah i think that's what we have to do i've i feel like I feel like, you know, and I don't remember who said this, so forgive me. Mm. I think it was Sarah Ahmed Mm. who sent out a tweet the other day talking about exhaustion Mm -hmm. as one of the strategies of, Mm -hmm. you know, the patriarchal white supremacist Mm -hmm. machine that tries to kill us every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're wearing us down. They're just trying to wear us down. And they're doing a really good damn job. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Absolutely. so, yeah, I just want to say that and just acknowledge that because I, yeah. one, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, but also mm-hmm. two, that's a good PSA for, for us and mm-hmm. everybody who listens to us to just mm-hmm. take a, take a break, take a break, take yeah. a break, take a pause. The work is important, but we mm-hmm. need to be more collaborative so we can mm-hmm. all pick up each other's slack and make sure that we are um, taking care of ourselves. Cause there's a lot of work to do. Agreed. You We're know, on the same page. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the reasons why I reached out today was because of your fierce work at the intersections of gender, sexuality, and all things black people everywhere. I'm crying. Um, and obviously it's Pride Month. 
Yeah. And you have some amazing queer projects brewing and lots of things to say about yeah. Pride Month, what it means and what it what it is. Yeah. And these projects are in addition to your book projects. And I want to hear mm-hmm. all about them. Yeah. Um, but I think I thought about and, you know, hopefully this is a good place to start. I thought about as I was reading your bio, the mm-hmm. way you describe yourself, obviously the way that you describe yourself invokes mm-hmm. um, the legacy of Audre Lorde in so many ways. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can kind of feel that in reading it. And so Mm -hmm. I want to start by asking you, what does it mean to be a queer gender flux, androgynous black woman, abolitionist Mm -hmm. and lover of all black people? I love this question. I've never gotten this question. Um, Yeah. You know, it's really interesting because it took me a while to get to this. You know, I, I, I slid through a lot of different ways to name myself over the last, I would say, five to 10 years. And for a long time, I just kind of, I landed it queer and, and I felt like it did, it did work, but not enough. And, um, you know, with the ways that folks use the term queer, uh, I felt there was too much misunderstanding of what that meant to me. So I decided to be very specific, right? Um, queerness, as we know, is not just about, you know, sexuality and who you wake up next to. Um, queerness is also about who you wake up as and the type of politics you espouse, right? So there's a set of queer politics, um, that are outside of a bedroom, that are in the streets, that are about, uh, about, uh, uh, addressing the government for a redress of grievances, right? Um, and the queerness in that is just falling outside of those heteronormative, uh, white cis patriarchal systems, um, and pushing back against the status quo. So for me, queerness is inherently who I am, not because of, of how I love, but because of how I move through the world in this body. Um, but you know, a few years ago, I started to really understand my, my gender, um, and understand black womanhood and its orientation to queerness and start really reading like more Elma Sika Tinsley, um, and really digging into Audre Lorde's work more deeply, um, and just asking more questions about how I even understood my own gender. And I was realizing that I don't feel gender in the ways that it's socially constructed around me. Like I don't wake up in the morning and feel like, oh, today I feel so womanly. You know, like I never have that. And the only time that I remember having those explicit feelings of femininity or being a longer binary was when I was pregnant, you know? Um, and now that I'm never doing that again, um, and I've served my time in the world of pregnancy. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm never I had to doing laugh again. at that one. So, <laughs> I had to laugh at that one. <laughs> done. Um, you know, I really started to think about what it means for my gender to not be tethered to these ways that my body is read by others, you know? And I think that, you know, um, being in the house on quarantine really really sent me into a, a place with that because I started to see myself every day and I wasn't going outside and being uh, gazed upon by others. I was, it, the only audience was me. Um, and one day I woke up and I was like, why do I have on all this drag? Like, why am I wearing all this stuff? Why do I have this hair on my head? Like, why am I putting these nails on this makeup? And, and it wasn't to, to rebuff those things as part of my queerness because I definitely put them back on. Um, I started to strip them away so I could examine myself. And in doing so, I found that my gender um, was really, I could feel the moments when it was being constructed and when it was being read and it was being gazed on and it was being projected. I could feel those moments because when I was alone, I didn't feel gender at all, you know? Um, I feel very androgynous in my body, my six foot four inch tall body. I've been this high since I was 12 years old. So for me, you know, kind of straddling the lines between masculinity and femininity has always been very natural as an athlete playing basketball. I had cornrows. I wore Jordans for most of high school. You know, I, I, when most average heighted people walk into a store and find a dress that goes to their knees, that is going to be a booty t-shirt on me, right? Like, this is my life. So for me, my orientation to even these social constructs of gender never fit. Um, the boxes never fit on my body. So when I talk about being a queer, gender flux, androgynous Black woman, I am also talking about the ways that Black womanhood inherently contains those multitudes, right? Even the way that we move through the world in Black bodies, you know, our uh, embodiment of gender is inherently different. So I just choose to front load that and say, 
here's what I'm telling you I am and who I'm telling you I am. And I've had people argue with me. You're not androgynous and you, you, you just seem like a woman or whatever. And I explain to people that, you know, blackness is inherently queer. It is inherently queer. It's outside of a white supremacist heteropatriarchal boundary. And it wraps itself up in my abolition work and in my love of all black people, right? I, I can't sit in this uh, fluid body and not love all black people, the people who are deemed criminal and deviant and unlovable, you know, because those people are me. I've, I've experienced those things. Um, and as an abolitionist for me, um, it's really about, you know, really thinking about what these carceral systems have done to us inside of ourselves. Like I always think about Mary Kaba saying that we have to think about the policing that happens in our own brains and our own bodies. Um, if we are actually going to dismantle any systems and I think frequently about the ways I use to embody gender and how I police my own body um, yeah. and my own sexuality to uh, assimilate or to show up in the world in ways that could uh, help me along or protect me or, you know, whatever my goal was. And so abolition for me is inherent to, to who I am because it is a part of the way that I survive now. You know, it's a part of the way that I claim myself and reclaim myself um, from systems that that never were made for me and did not want me anyway. Um, but it's also to say that um, if we are really about the business of, of fighting for Black people and loving Black people, we have to understand that we are also Black people. <laughs> so how we move in our bodies, how we choose to show up matters just as much as how we uh, fight on behalf of other folks in our communities. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's so much there. And that was so beautiful. I really, I really appreciate that reflection. And as I was listening to you, I couldn't help but think about your advisor, Kathy Cohen, um, yeah. who, you know, between the two of you um, have taught me so much hmm. about what it means to be queer for black people. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And why queerness is so central to who we are as black people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's really, I, I, I'm just, I'm kind of awestruck by your description because um, not only is it beautiful, but it also reminds us about the political stakes right. of queerness for not only the way we understand our social world, mm-hmm. but also the way that we understand abolition, the mm-hmm. way that we understand carcerality, mm-hmm. and the way that those things are also implicated in how we wake up in the morning and right. how we go to bed at night. Right. And that right. is something that I think that most folk, I'll just say most of us, because I'm going to say, I'll put myself in there because I don't want to implicate other people, right? Mm-hmm. Most of us, don't necessarily think about on a regular basis because of the hegemonic ways that gender and sexuality function Mm -hmm. in our society. And to throw a little that historical perspective into it because of the ways that historically black women in particular have had to cling to normative gender and sexuality ideas in order to survive. Right. Absolutely. Right. And so, you know, and I think what, what I think is beautiful is that most of the time, and I'm guilty of this, so I'm actually throwing myself under the bus. Mm -hmm. Most of the time when we think about that gender queer aspect of black women's gender and sexuality, Mm -hmm. we think about it in terms of our experiences with violence. Correct. And what's beautiful about your biographical reflection just now Mm -hmm. is that you're centering on what it means to have black joy and a black sense of freedom yeah through a gender flux gender queer Mm -hmm. approach to how you see yourself and Mm -hmm. so I I just think that that's really really beautiful Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. you know that kind of goes into pride month in a lot of ways Um, right. Because pride month, I'm always torn. Right. So on the one hand, obviously, you know, as site black women, we are very much 
queer focused and mm-hmm. queer anchored. Mm-hmm. And when we say cite black women, we're not talking about cis black women. We're talking right. about everybody right. who identifies with black femme, black mm-hmm. womanhood, mm-hmm. all of the things. And I, and that's part of the reason why your, your, your definition and your, your reflections are so inspiring to me because it helps to push people mm-hmm. on that, in that regard. Right. Mm-hmm. So what do we mean when we say black women? Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but every year when pride month rolls around i i have a bit of a <laughs> child me too internal conflict me too I you can't. know what i'm saying it's yeah. like on the one hand we want to be we want to embrace it yeah but on the other hand it has become hyper commercialized in many ways absolutely um you know and i'm sure this is probably a lot of people's experiences i was in target the other day mm-hmm. we know about target mm-hmm. and target has gotten i mean its pride display is loud okay <laughs> it's like in the front they got rainbows hanging off of everything Child. i mean and it's tied to your 250 dollars target bill of course um, when you walk out so i wanted you to talk a little bit about this corporatization of pride month and what it means for black queer people yeah, I mean, and I love this because I, I was just tweeting the other day. I was like, I promise y'all we are black and gay the entire year. I promise y'all we don't wake up on June 1st and, and get gay. And we don't <laughs> right? we don't wake up on February 1st and become black. You know, um, I I really, so this, this has triggered me as well. I bumped into some Skittles at CVS. Oh, and they no, were, not Skittles. They were pride Skittles. <laughs> they were, they were gray. And I said, how does that work? They drained the color from the Skittles and they said the only rainbow that matters in June is the pride rainbow. And I said, wow, you have no idea what pride is actually about if you think that we give a shit about these damn Skittles. (laughs) Especially not Skittles for black people. I mean, in all seriousness, it's a trigger for us in the wake of the assassination of Trayvon Trayvon Martin. Martin. You have no idea. And the idea that anybody wants to eat some raggedy gray Skittles, nobody wants gray is not an appetizing (laughs) color. But also, you know, I've seen, I've seen, you know, Juneteenth Vaseline, you know, oh gosh. it's getting out that. of control. It's getting out of, the white people have found us. They discovered that we are gay and that we are black and it, and it's out of control. And this is what I talk about a lot when I talk about, um, you know, what it means to be like queer in public with the ways that whiteness always, always needs to suck up all the oxygen in the room. It needs to inhale and absorb everything, co-opt and caricature, because that is how whiteness understands itself and understands the world through possession and dispossession. Absolutely. So, you know, when I think about what's happened with pride, you know, I'm not surprised that people don't understand that, you know, Stonewall was a riot, that it was a rebellion, that it was black trans women like Marsha P. Johnson, uh, who, and Stormy Delavare, right, who were throwing bottles at police, who were fighting, physically fighting police, who were locked in, uh, you know, at the Stonewall Club and were fighting to, to just be seen and not arrested and surveilled and harmed. People don't understand, you know, that people were being arrested every single night, trying to just be outside in their skin. You know what I'm saying? Um, and this, this culture of trying to make everything into a cute story, um, because white people are resistant to historical truth is so exhausting to me. It's so exhausting. So when I see all this co-optation and corporatization, it just, to me is another way that we continue to participate in this status quo where it's like, we have to only talk to white people about hard things through picture books. You know, like at some point we have to treat white people like adults because they're adults. You know, they have to grow up and we can't keep easing straight people and white folk and able-bodied folk into conversations about our real lives. Because for those of us who sit at those multiple margins who are black and queer and disabled and working class and poor, Mm -hmm. we don't have a choice to wait until we're 40 to start reading history because we feel better about it. And now we have the emotional and intellectual wherewithal to handle the truth. Like, no, we got to learn at 12 when somebody calls us a nigger on the street. We don't have time to waste. So for me, 
the corporatization is like we have to laugh through the pain, right? We have we have to chuckle about it, but it's just another way for me that I see uh, this refusal to really face the fact of history, and it's wrapped up in this whole "don't say gay," uh, mm-hmm. anti-critical race theory moment. You know, the post-racial moment, the color blindness moment, which is super ableist, right? all of these terminologies that don't even fully even express what it means to be in a racialized place in this moment. Also, what I think is so interesting and what I love about being black and why I would never want to be anything else ever. I would I never <laughs> want to be anything other than a black woman ever. I, I love it. There's nothing better, but I think frequently about um, Darlene Clark Hines work on the culture of dissemblance and how yes. she uh, perfectly articulated the ways that we um, as black women and black femme folk and black queer folk um, have this culture of we don't share that in mixed company, right? Like we have a culture, it's like an inherent culture of I have an inner self, I have an inner knowing, I have an inner being, and I inherently know that that can be shared with some people. And and a lot yeah. of those, a lot of y'all are not those people, right? Um I talk a lot about my pronouns because people are like, girl, what are your pronouns? Because when you are around the, when you are around the Judy's, when you are around the gays, they call you she. And I explain to them that's because they understand my gender. I am okay with black queer people, black women, black femme folks, black folks in multiple margins of identity referring to me as she because they understand the multiplicity and the complexity of being a black woman. They know Mm -hmm. my experience. When a white person looks at me and says, she, I am offended. I'm offended. I'm offended because they have no idea what black gender is. And that to me is really the embodiment, another form of the embodiment of the culture of dissemblance, the ways we have these inner, these inner selves, these inner community knowings, but that we, we portend, like we have this, this version of ourselves that we uh, emote and that we share with outsiders to survive and to get our paycheck and to, you know, get home alive and in one piece, you know? And I think that's exactly what pride is. is We're watching this mass consumption of pride and of Juneteenth and of Black History Month and of Women's Month. And, you know, and we know that that is not real. We know that that's not tethered to our experiences or our historical realities, right? So we have our alternative experiences. We have alternative prides, you know? We have alternative uh, ways of sharing that knowledge and that gossip and that, that, uh, that knowing within ourselves so that we don't have to be affected by what white, the white gaze is doing, the straight gaze is doing, the able-bodied gaze is doing. So I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's annoying, right? Because it's like, wow, y'all still, y'all still doing it. Y'all still think that we just became gay. Like y'all still (laughs) act like it's so weird. You, it's, it's strange. It's goofy, you know? But at the same time, we've insulated ourselves so successfully that it's it's almost like we we have this esoteric like master language, you know, this master narrative, um, that they don't have any access to. And I like stuff like that. I I love I love it. I mean, you know, I'm I'm a really kind of introverted person, and so I'm always hiding everything from everybody all the yeah. time. <laughs> So, you know, it's it, it it's gonna take me a while to be to be less that way. And I do think it's definitely part of our culture, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was thinking a lot about what you said about this this kind of racialized difference with pronouns, and that really mm-hmm. struck me because I had never thought about it like that. Mm-hmm so true it's so true mm-hmm. because i think about the way we use the expression girl mm-hmm. like in the conversation yep like girl girl tell you what happened yeah and i find myself and this is actually an ongoing joke one of my best friends who's who identifies as male mm-hmm. and i find myself calling him girl same. all the time same all the time same. and same. it's because it's it's there's a different kind of black understanding yes. of gender yep. and intimacy and relationships and femme. And it's like when you're mm-hmm. really vibing with mm-hmm. your best friend, mm-hmm. like when you say girl, it means because I trust you. Same. 
you get me. Same. Like, it's not the same as the kind of like white patriarchal misogynist yes. use of the term girl and also the way that that gets hypersexualized in white culture. Right. Right. You know, like the infantilization. Yes. All of those things. And so I, yeah, that, that just kind of blew my mind just now. So I wanted to take a minute. (laughs) And you know, you know who my uh, male best friend is and that man gets called girl all 17 times a day. And, you know, and that's, it, it, there is a dialectic to girl. There's different types of girls. There's, right. there's like, girl, like, oh, I got to right. something. And there's like, girl, like, what are you doing? And also like, right. okay, girl, like, mm, I don't know. Right. But then, you know, there's also that kind of white gay male. I want to be in with black trans women, dra- black femmes, where they say they have a black woman in their bodies. And they're like, girl. And that feels, that feels antagonistic. Right? And offensive. And offensive. There's the white woman who's like, girl. And you're like, mm, please never do that again. Do not speak to me, Chloe. Don't do this, Karen. You know? And, and those are actually forms of violence. You know what I'm saying? And so I really, for me, it has been really important to really sit in my gender and to, to put boundaries. And I will tell people, mm-hmm. hey, you, you can use they, them. And I'll sit right in front of them and go, you can say she her i don't care <laughs> i love that no i love it i love I it care. like this is i love it because that's a that's a level of nuance that i think mm-hmm. that folk don't really appreciate mm-hmm. right it you know it's just there's a lot there there's a lot yeah. there there's a level of nuance that yeah. we really need to lean into we are not the same Absolutely. Nowhere near it. No. And we're okay with that. I think yeah. that that's the latter part is the part yeah. that, you know, our, you know, our, our white allies and white enemies, cause there's both. So right. Many. And yeah. Um, but no, none of them understand that. Right. Yeah. Like it, we're okay with being different. Inscrutable. Absolutely. Absolutely. Audre Lorde told us we, this is not about erasing and watering down our differences no i want you to notice absolutely <laughs> recognize my differences please inventory them absolutely <laughs> <No>, they matter <laughs> and you don't have to be in on the way that i understand the world right. and think in order to be a good ally right you don't have to appropriate the way i speak Correct. or the way i act or the way i embody myself in the everyday right, right. you can just be and right in actuality, you just being and letting me be is right. really all I want. Hold regard. All I ask is that you hold regard. Absolutely. Honor it. Honor it. That's it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that, that leads me to my next question, right? Yeah. And yeah. and I think that this question um, is one that I'm hoping will be uh, kindly didactic to all yeah. of us, right? Myself yeah. included. So, yeah. you know, not just the folk who tune into our podcast, but everybody. Yeah. What should we be focusing on during Pride Month? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, I, I've been thinking about this, like what, what, what is the, what is the real focus in Pride Month? And I think it's the same focus we should have every day. And maybe that's, you know, work, waking up every day as an organizer and inherently and seeing myself not as a professor first or a writer first, but as an organizer first. Um, I think that for me, Pride Month is just like every day that many of us wake up in our conditions, in our context. So many of us wake up every day fighting. And I really think that during Pride Month, for those people who are clearly not thinking about it, the other 11 months of the calendar, you know, they should be considering why only in Pride Month they feel the need to advocate for and support and encourage uh, queer folks in their orbits and in the general world. I think it's very interesting that during Pride Month, uh, people notice differently, right? Mm-hmm. That yeah. to me is like, is I'm, I'm starting to understand that these rainbows and these billboards and these cute uh, images are not just, um, are not just, tactics that corporate entities are using to sell products and they're not just ways that the mass kind of consumerism culture has uh created these symbiotic uh uh monopolies right it's like you got the beer and then it's at the grocery store because they get a deal on the beer and then they're gonna have an event and right all that's happening but what's also happening is that um there are people who see that and go 
oh yeah. And I, I, it took me a while mm-hmm. to realize that for, for a lot of people, there's an, oh yeah, when it comes to queer people or black people or poor people or disabled people, they need reminders mm-hmm. that we exist. And for me, if that is someone's reaction during Pride Month or any of these various days and months that remind people that we are here, I think people should spend a lot of time thinking about why that is the case and what they can do to change that. If, you know, I and people like me, like us, move through the world and we don't get the ahas because we are required to have the psychic capacity to hold all this knowledge and all this history and all this truth all the time simultaneously mm-hmm. i always yeah. think about this i think about um my friend the late lauren berlant who frequently talked about the psychic energy it takes to be poor and black and queer you know the psychic energy you spend on survival the psychic energy you spend on knowing yourself, right? When there are people who can walk through the world and just not participate in any of that. And I really think that that's something that I I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, but I also think that other people who are, especially who consider themselves something called allies, which I don't understand the term and I don't support it. <laughs> I don't know what the hell that shit is. But <laughs> people who call themselves that or who think they're that, I'm like, you know, are you spending time considering the fact that you have an opt-in opt-out box, you know, that you can simply just turn off the focus on something that is uh, critical to my life and livelihood, something that um, people are literally dying and being killed about. You can just kind of change the channel. And that's, that's where I'm like, "Mm, y'all got to do better. Whatever this ally thing is, is like, I need y'all to, the stakes need to be higher. I need y'all to have more skin in the game. Like, Absolutely. get to work. I just, Absolutely. Pride Month and every month, I need y'all to, I need y'all next on the lines. I, I want to see it. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that because I think that this idea that folk are just turning channels between different mm-hmm. months and themes mm-hmm. and every month and theme is a new flavor that they can try yeah. of experimental diversity. I think that that, that, you know, that's part of the problem. Absolutely. Right? It's like there is no there there are no consequences right to your refusal to see right right because it's entirely too convenient for you um, to just figure out what day it is because right you're Target right and, uh, and I'm you know I keep talking about Target but it could be any place I'm right. not trying to Target in the bus it could be all Child Wegman's got it too our Wegman's whatever like pick your pick your store right <laughs> pick your corporate flavor of the month right. I mean, there's a way that, you know, we, for those folk who, um, this is, like you said, just a reminder, a wake up, mm-hmm. then it's, it's, it's really too convenient. That's too right? convenient, bro. Mm-hmm. And we need to be made uncomfortable. Absolutely. And Absolutely. get out of our comfort zones in order to make this work, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, I, I think, well, I want to talk about, I, I definitely want to talk about your projects because I think yeah. that everything that you are talking about right now is mm-hmm. reflected in your scholarship and your writing, yeah. your public scholarship, your, your podcast, mm-hmm. all of the things that the beautiful things that you do, um, these book projects that you have going on. And I want to just turn to that right now, because I think that'll help people to be able to learn more and hear more from yeah. you. Yeah. Um, beyond just this podcast here on site, Black Women. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's so many. I'm such a Virgo. Oh Lord. Um, <laughs> you know we're on the Virgo team, so <laughs> I know. So books. Yeah, I am. I am um, writing Black Women taught us, and it is a love letter to Black women. I like. This is how I know I'm a lesbian. You know, I just love Black women. I really do. And I love that. Yeah, and I'm just so grateful that I get to write this book. I get to write a book that is essentially um, walking through my life and my experiences, but the ways that I discovered uh, Black feminism and um, kind of the very, you know, there's there's obviously going to be the, the traumatic moments and the hard moments, but there's also so many points of beauty in uh, finding yourself in the words of others and the experiences of others. 
Um, and it's really an ode to that process because I really do think that the ways that we kind of fall into community sometimes organically with one another, um, that kind of thing where we look across the room and we see a black woman and something clicks and we've got something in common and we don't know what it is yet, but we know that we're drawn to each other because the ancestors and spirits and the energy said that we should talk to this woman, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that's what this book is about. The ways that these women who, some of them who, you know, were earthside while I was alive and some who were not, um, have just touched my life and whose words are on my body, but who are in me, you know, who I, even the way I think of myself is, is articulated through lenses and frameworks that, that they, uh, wrote for the first time. So that's that project. Uh, Policing Blackness is my first academic project. It's a, uh, it's the dissertation book. And um, it's it's me and intersectional threat and really trying to push my discipline, but also uh, social sciences in general to understand that when we talk about threat and when we talk about the ways that certain people, certain groups are deemed um, threatening or deviant, we are are almost always talking through an anti-black lens where white people are the victims and the threatened and black people or people who are closer in proximity to blackness, darker skinned or uh, racialized as black, right. Um, are seen as the threat. And under that type of framework, it is impossible to understand the fullness of blackness. It's impossible when, when the literature itself uh, roots the idea of threat in an anti-black uh, ethos how do we understand what it means to be black? We don't. <laughs> so right. my project is really trying to dig deep and say, what is threat? What even is threat, right? Um, when we deracialize threat and we think about what it is, then we figure out that actually threat is something that happens intersectionally. And the threat that we've been talking about with white people is a perception because it's not even actually a historical narrative or truth to corroborate the feeling of threat, to corroborate the perception that something will happen to white folks. When? Where? I would like to see the receipts, right? The threat that black folks and queer folks and folks at multiple margins of identity, the the threats that folks of these experiences uh, articulate comes from seeing videos, from, from reading about lynchings, from talking to their grandparents who witnessed their friends and their family members murdered, right? We have evidence. We have evidence. We have evidence. And our our sensation of threat and fear and anxiety comes from a deeply rooted intergenerational place. And this book is really an attempt to reclaim and say, you don't get to have dominion on being threatened because you are afraid of us. You don't get to you don't get to decide that you are in danger because you are anti-black. Mm, no. Actually, yeah. y'all are some of the scariest people in the history of this world. <laughs> and we have to be honest about that. So, you know, I like to disrupt things. That's why I'm at you Chicago Press. Um, I love it. I love both of those projects. I mean, yeah. I think that, that, you know, I'm excited for both of them and for different reasons, right? Because yeah. they do different things. So mm-hmm. on the one hand, you have this, you know, ode to Black women, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And ode to our intellectual trajectories, mm-hmm. which, you know, anybody who knows me knows I'm always here for that, Absolutely. right? Um, but on the other hand, you have this deep reflection within the field of political science, which is, which is your training, mm-hmm. which is, which is a contentious field, right? Absolutely. It, it's not been a field that's been open and welcoming to black people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to make that argument within political theory and political philosophy, I think is, um, is really going to make a great contribution. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm excited for them and I'm excited for both of those projects. Yeah. I wanted to know what. I'm wanting to hear a little bit more about these fantastic black women who are yes. inspiring you in this first book and specifically yes. And this is always a hard question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. People get mad at me about this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. If there was one black woman that folk had to read. Oh, yeah. That's easy for me. Oh, there you go. Okay. So who would it be? Audre Lorde. 
Of course. Please. I mean, it's easy for me, but it's not, right? So, like, this book is is a culmination of 11 Black women in the Combahee River Collective, which is obviously a group of Black women who have whose words and work have, have shaped me as a Black feminist. But if I had to talk about the most influential three in that book, it is Audre Lorde, Toni Morrison, and Bell Hooks. Woo! Yeah. The, the Holy Trinity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I, I and I, I really, there's something about Toni Morrison. There's something about that woman. Um, I believe that she is the greatest writer of all time. I don't think yes. that anyone will ever put words to paper in the way. And I mean paper because she wrote everything down. She wrote by hand, you know? Yes. Um, and she, she is a gift to us. Well, she, she I, I'm like, what, did, what did the ancestors, what did God what conversation did they have to make that woman? How did they put, what ingredients? You know, I don't, I just am in awe. So um, in the book, there's Harriet Jacobs. There is Ida B. Wells. There's Zora Neale Hurston, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Shirley Chisholm, the Combahee River Collective, Angela Davis, uh, Bell Hooks, and Toni Morrison. And, you know, those are just the ones that I have dedicated chapters to, but I also have a whole section where I'm like, hey, don't stop here. You know, go read other folks. And you're mentioned in there. So I just want to make sure that you know that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, good company. I feel humbled by that. You know. Right. You know, Patricia Hill Collins and Kimberly Crenshaw, Kathy Cohen, Barbara Ransby, the Kristen Smiths of the world, you know, um, Janet Mock, you know, the words that I've read that really pushed me to think differently. And that's that's what the book is about. And it's about the ways that in many, I think in many ways, you know, when we're writing, even if we're just writing in a journal or a diary, a lot of us are really trying to, we're trying to find that connection. And for those of us who are, who grew up like isolated and not necessarily in that kind of community and being able to talk about the things that we were struggling through, mm. picking up those books, it, it made those connections for us. You know, the first time I picked up, picked up a, uh, feminist theory uh you know from margin to cinder you know i i was like whoa bell she knows me you know what i'm saying the first time i read sisters of the yam i was like oh my god yeah. this is my whole family is in this book when i first opened up um i read about master's tools when i first read uh age race in class age race and gender uh, you know i i i didn't I did not realize how much of what my mother had said to me and my grandmother had said to me and my church mothers and my community members had said to me um, in different words were, were theorized, were, were in these books. Even I read Melissa Harris Perry, um, Sister Citizen in 2011, 2011, 2013. And I read that, that, that concept of a crooked room. Um, that yes, she yes, yes. And the idea, and as she's as she's articulating this in this book, I'm feeling myself and seeing myself, and I'm like the visual of me being standing here crooked in this white supremacist heteropatriarchal room, so that I can fit, right? It was one of the most um, the most accurate uh, descriptions of how I felt being in corporate America at this white uh, Fortune 500 institution, trying to just get a paycheck every day and not and not let them kill me. <laughs> in the process yeah. you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. Absolutely. so all of this the the book is really just all of the words all of the words and the wisdom you know and the ways that i reflect on these experiences in my life in college and grad school and having my children and thinking about my gender and where those words came into play even when i didn't know those words you know um and i think that's what a love letter is right yeah you know, yeah. uh, I really been thinking about love a lot. I've been thinking about love so much. The love chapter is obviously about bell hooks. Oh, there's a love chapter. Yes. Oh yeah. And the I bell hooks it. chapter is really about me being a failure at loving black people. And you know, I'm a Virgo. I'm hard on myself. Um, I, I was going to say that that I was know. harsh. I know. <laughs> um, but it's because, you know, I think a lot about the ways that we, we we wait to love people until after they're gone or we wait to love people until after something catastrophic happens. And, you know, Belle passed away so abruptly and I was writing the book and I realized I didn't have a Bell Hooks chapter. Right. Because she was alive. 
So I was right. like, okay, you know, she's written 40,000 books and she's, she's still here. She's doing all this work. And I didn't have a bell hooks chapter. And then she passed away and I felt this profound loss and this profound disappointment in myself because I was like, girl, you wrote a whole book as a love letter to black women and you didn't include one of the most pivotal and critical black women who shaped your black feminist. How does, so the whole chapter is me struggling with that, especially as a polyamorous person, right? A person who believes that love is expansive and flexible and it waxes and wanes and that it's an energy and that we can't, it doesn't dissipate. It, it exists forever, even when folks are no longer earthside, when they are loving us in another realm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy crap, I cannot believe I, I, I didn't love Bell Hooks right, you know? And I start reflecting on all the women in my life who, for whatever reason, I felt that I didn't necessarily love right. And and the the tension in, in loving properly, right? We love, we, we say we love people. We say that we love them. But when it comes time to love them properly, do we, you know? So the whole chapter is really thinking about what it means to love Black women properly, to love black women in our black women in our fullness and black women in our mistakes and offering grace and accountability in that love. And it's probably my favorite chapter in the book, but it gutted me. I'll tell you that right now. I was like, Oh, babe, I'm so sorry. I mean, I think, I don't know how you are, but I think whenever I write something that guts me, mm-hmm. it's because it is in communion mm-hmm. with the ancestors. Yeah. That's when, you know, when I when I'm when I'm literally crying yep. and writing at the same time, yeah. which happens frequently. Yeah. Viola um, Booger, Viola uh the Viola Davis snot bubbles. Yeah. You just, <laughs> yes. You just keep typing. And you just keep going, just right? Keep and you just keep going, right? It's because <laughs> You're making that connection, yeah. that that love connection, not in the 1980s mm-hmm. game show way, but that mm-hmm. connection across time and space that reminds you of what deep relationships mm-hmm. need to be revealed mm-hmm. through your words, right? Yeah, bro. And so I, I can't wait to read that because that is going to be fire yeah. and amazing and wonderful, like everything that you do. But I, right. I'm really excited about this project. Thank you. And I know we've been chatting for a while, but I want to close with one really important question, Yeah. which doesn't mean you can't say other things, but I yeah. got to get this one in for me. Yeah. What dreams occupy Ooh. your mind? <sighs> Oh, child. Um, I'm a very lucid dreamer. I dream all the time. It's it's really wild over here. And remember, I love Marvel and uh, superheroes. I, I'd be flying in my dreams. Um, I love that. But when I think about my waking dreams and what occupies my mind, I'm going to get real meta here. Um, so I said earlier, I'm, I'm polyamorous. And you know what that means is that I, I don't believe in or participate in monogamy at all you know I've been married for 16 years I've been with um my spouse for 20 years we have three children um he is asexual and I am a lesbian and we have chosen to build our lives together I'm also someone who you know have I have a a girlfriend who I love very very much um and again like I said I love black women I also love black people and I have this, I have this dream. Um, I love horses. I, like I said, I'm six foot four and I've been, I'm not, I'm not tall and, and skinny anymore. I'm a thick one. So, you know, I'm a big girl. Um, I love that. so like, I think about horses a lot and, uh, I love them because of these, you know, very large majestic animals. And I just feel like they're so misunderstood. I like go and stare into their eyes, you know, I'm, I'm, corny. I'm so corny. I'm so corny. Everyone's like, you want to ride, you want to ride them? I'm like, no, I'm not riding her. Like, I just want to pet her and, and, and tell her she's pretty. I'm not writing her. She's not going to be laboring for me. Um, but I love that. I have this dream of owning land um, and and building a kind of commune. And again, we know that ownership is contingent upon the fact that this is all unceded indigenous land and that we do not own this land. We are, we are borrowing um, this land and that we have to honor it for the folks who actually uh, are the original owners of this land. 
Uh, I say Absolutely. that to say that, um, you know, I do have this deep desire to to build a kind of black Mecca, to build a black commune <laughs> where there's a, a restaurant and there's a loft space and a bed and breakfast and uh, what I call a binary, right? I have a hundred plants in my house. Um, <laughs> I grow exotic plants. I, I grow, I grow everything. And, you know, I want to have horses and I want to have um, various farm animals and I want to, I want to grow food. And I want to kind of think about, you know, Harriet Tubman's vision, you know what I'm saying? To, to get back to ourselves. Bell Hooks yeah. talks about this as well um, with her ancestors and her kin and the conversations that she had with her grandmother about how she managed to survive away from her, her people in Kentucky for so long and how that was strange to her family members and how she had to return to herself, you know? Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, returning is always about returning to the land and, mm-hmm. and returning to the soil. So the dream that occupies my mind is, you know, that return. I cannot, I, I, I am so excited for that day of return. And I don't know where that land will be. I don't know if it'll be on the continental U.S., you know, you know, mainland where I, I was born and where I, I live now, or if it'll be somewhere else. Um, but I do know that for me in the way that my relationship is set up with the ancestors and with the earth, that is, I am magnetized to that vision. I am magnetized. Like I think about it every day. And I know, again, I'm a Virgo. I know that if I put my mind to it, it's going to happen. So <laughs> Absolutely. It's going to happen. We're going to have, you're going to drive in one day. It's going to be like Jacksonia. You know, I, I'm just saying, yes. just get prepared. It's going to happen. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that. And I think that's a beautiful place to kind of leave people Mm -hmm. with that vision Mm -hmm. and that sense of inspiration and hope and reflection. Yeah. Before we go, is there anything else you want to share? I think you're amazing. And I'm so glad to be here in conversation. Oh my goodness. You are very, very, very kind. And you also know me well enough to know that I shrink and go hide into a cave. That's why I do it. Whenever I get compliments. I know. And now it's recorded. Don't edit it out. Keep it in there. <laughs> no, no, no. I would never do you like that. I got to be honest. That's one of my one of my big principles. Like my ethic, my ethical core requires me to be honest. So when people call me out, I'm like, man. Oh. But I appreciate you. You have no idea how deeply I appreciate you and the energy that you bring into this world. And I just want to say thank you. You know, Aww. thank you for recording this podcast. Thank you for being part of the site, Black Women Collective. Absolutely. Thank you for the way that you just bring joy into the world. Okay. I really appreciate you. I appreciate that too. Thank you. Thank you. Aww. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Site Black Women. Follow us at Sight Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and www.sightblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. <laughs>